Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 185 of the Chills of Will podcast. What a pleasure today to be joined by Tony Ann Johnson. And here's a bit about her background. Tony Ann Johnson is a screenwriter, playwright, and novelist. She won the 1998 Humanitas Prize and the 1998 Christopher Award for her script, Ruby Bridges. In 2004, she won a second Humanitas Prize for her script, Crown Heights. She was nominated for a 2015 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work for Debut Author. Remedy for a Broken Angel also won a 2015 Beverly Hills Book Award for Multicultural Fiction and a 2015 International Latino Book Award for Most Inspirational Fiction Book. In 2020, her novella, Homegoing, won Accents Publishing's inaugural novella contest. She won the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction for her linked short story collection, Light Skin Gone to Waste. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Like we were saying before recording here, you have so much, such a renaissance woman that we unfortunately, you know, we'd have to have a nine hour session to be able to get <laughs> to all of it. But I look forward to, to, to talking to you about just the creative life. I'd love to know about growing up, you know, we'll get into the the collection and in some of your interviews, you talked about, you know, it being how much, how, how autobiographical it is mm-hmm. or not. But, um, you know, so, we, so we do get to kind of, I think, know you a little bit through the fiction, but I'd love to know about your early reading and writing specifically, um, how you, you know, how you grew up sure. with, you know, magazines and, and stuff all around the place. Were you uh, always in the library? How did that work? Um, I did like the library a lot. My mother belonged to some kind of charity or something that was associated with the library, the the board. Um, but I was an, interested in acting from a very young age. So my um, I was reading books, of course, but I was really interested in plays from the time I was like a tween. So I started reading plays like around age 12, 13. Um, and I started studying acting professionally at 14. So I was doing scenes and stuff in, in New York City. I was communicating, uh, commuting to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Oh, yeah. So a lot of what I was reading was stuff that I was trying to act in. So um, plays like, and, and then also in high school, I loved Shakespeare and Tennessee mm-hmm. Williams. And so I read a lot of that and I was in, um, a couple of productions. So I was in the children's hour when I was in high school. So that's oh, by Lillian okay. Hellman. So I read some of her work, but I, I really loved Tennessee Williams and, um, and the, the poetry in his language and his particularly in his dialogue, the way the characters spoke. Uh-huh. And I think that that has been influential in, in my fiction later, like in the eighties, I, I started going to see August Wilson plays when they began coming to um, New York. And he 
has a technique where the characters when they speak it's like poetry and there's a rhythm to, and cadence to the their long monologues mm -hmm. um and i just love that and and i think that that has had a a big influence on my work and i also loved uh james baldwin that was the mm -hmm. first writer who i read everything that i could all of his fiction books i just like i read one i was like oh my god and i just kept reading them one after mm -hmm. another during college so it was kind of a, a mix of um of lots of different uh people but plays and novels mm. if you had to pick uh, baldwin's fiction or nonfiction, if you had to would you would you be able to pick one wow that would be so <laughs> hard what a good question i i love both um so during the pandemic I uh, subscribed to this app, the Libby app, okay. and I would walk for exercise. I wasn't going to the gym and I listened to every single fiction and almost mm. all of the nonfiction books. There's a, a newer nonfiction book that I have on Kindle that wasn't on audiobook, but I listened to all of them. And I don't know. I guess if I had to pick, I'd probably pick the fiction, but the, but the nonfiction is spectacular yeah. Yeah. and still every bit as relevant today as, as especially in 2020 like when i'm you know home during the pandemic walking around during the whole george floyd protest and i'm listening to baldwin's nonfiction. it's like nothing was different nothing didn't relate you know like it was amazing um so yeah he he was he i would say he was like a mentor because I just pulled so much from him and I never I didn't get to meet him in person but I was once on a small airplane going from New York when this was when I was an actress I was going to Rochester to be in a an industrial film for Xerox and James Baldwin was on the plane what? and I walked I walked back from the restroom and I saw him and I was just like <laughs> and I couldn't speak and I, oh. I wasn't absolutely positive it was him, but I thought it was him and I, I just couldn't even speak. And then I sat down and then the next day in Rochester, it came out in the newspaper that he was being honored for an award and it mm -hmm. was him. And I wanted to kill myself <laughs> oh, no. because I did, because I had read so much of his work by then. Yeah. And I, but I, I still, I can feel that nervous feeling in my oh. chest, like just how, like stunned I was to see him. I admired him so much, but yeah, that, that's one of my greatest regrets that I didn't tell him how much I loved him. Oh man, no, I can, I can kind of picture him probably. He was like, had like a beautiful suit on, probably had a cigarette in the days he could smoke on a plane or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he was with um, a, a, a young man who I, I don't know if it was his partner or whatever, but, but he was, I do remember that he was with somebody and I do think he had on a gray, uh, jacket um i don't remember <laughs> oh man the suit, but oh. Oh, I, I still feel that nervous energy whenever i think about that day oh, man <laughs> i was kind of doing the math i don't think that it would that your times would have intersected lee strasberg i don't did you ever get to meet him i did um lee was so i started studying at the lee strasberg theater institute when i was 14 and this okay. was in the 70s my my age on the internet isn't isn't accurate it was uh -huh. like it, it went from one website where it was incorrect and then it I knew you're 36, all you're 36 over. right? You're 36. <laughs> exactly. But um, I'm a little bit older. I was still alive. I was there when Lee died. I was studying at the school uh, when Lee died. I went to his, his funeral, which was at a, well, I don't know if it was his funeral, a memorial 
which was at a theater in the theater district in New York City. Um, I remember Ellen Burstyn spoke. um, Mm. And I also studied and worked with his wife, Anna. Um, So yeah, I was around. I went to his lectures when I didn't have him as my personal acting teacher, Uh but he gave um, sort of acting um, seminars and mm. everybody was, I think everybody was invited to come and we we, we could only listen, yeah. but I went and I listened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really fascinated by him and he had been in, was he uh, the Godfather two, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, he was a movie star. So like, I was more impressed with that, I think, than uh-huh. I, I don't even think I was as aware of his history. Um, but I was aware that he was in that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would have been insufferable. I would have just done Hyman Roth. Yes, he played in Godfather 2 was Hyman Roth. Mm-hmm. I would have just done Hyman Roth close the whole time. And he would have been <laughs> I also got to be a working observer at the actor's studio. Oh, nice. And, uh, that was that was after Lee died, though. But it was, you know, that same world. So I got to see people there. I got to see Al Pacino and Paul hey. Newman and Joanne Woodward. And it was... Oh just amazing <laughs> i bet oh my gosh so um you know monroe new york is the setting of light skin gone to waste for the most part like people like me I'm, I'm fairly ignorant on new york you know there's the city and there's kind of like upstate but it's not really upstate like how would you describe is it like is it like yonkers is it like a suburb is it um no so people in the city call anything north of the george washington bridge upstate um but sure. technically Monroe is only 50 miles from New York City, so it is technically downstate. Yeah. However, if you if you have a life where you're going from New York City to there, people in the city don't differentiate between upstate and downstate. Anything okay. outside of yeah. the Bronx is right. like it's right. upstate. Okay. So we called it upstate, um, but yeah. it techni- but people in Rochester would not call Monroe. but that's but that is what we called it yeah (laughs) um yeah so it was not a suburb um it has been called a suburb when my book has been referred to but Mm. when my parents moved there it was a small rural town and in the first house i lived in there was a farm up the street with cows um, everybody, so like my mom would go to the bank or my dad would go to the bank and the, the president of the bank knew their names, you know, like it was a small sure. town. Um, it is a suburb now, okay. but it wasn't a suburb in the sixties um, and even into the seventies. It was, st- I mean, there were people there who never went to the city their whole lives yeah, who yeah, were yeah, afraid yeah. of the city. They, they thought if they went there, they would get shot. Like uh-huh. they were a small town people okay <laughs> some of them and then there were other people who moved from the city there so yeah. they were more suburban um but it was a mix okay that makes sense i appreciate that so i mean you talked about the some of the the theater and some of those inspirations as you got older high school into college like who are some of those um writers you, you mentioned baldwin who are some of the writers or writing that really inspired you um, well, Baldwin continued to, but then I started as I, as I got older and into college, um, I took a couple of African literature classes. Um, so I took um, I took this class that focused a lot on, it, there were some women, um, Bessie Head, but then there were, there was um, Chinua Chebe and um, I think 
I'm not sure if, if I'm getting his name right, Amos Tuola. Um, but there were a bunch of African writers that I started reading. And I don't know that they had a great influence, but Bessie Head may have, because she also kind of wrote about um, mental illness a bit. Mm. And I, my father was a psychologist and psychoanalyst, so all of that stuff was, was sort of intriguing to me. Um, but then I was still, you know, when I went to college, I wasn't studying fiction. I was still studying uh, acting and I was studying uh, playwriting and screenwriting. So I was still reading playwrights. But I later took a class with Chinua Achebe himself um, outside of N NYU. Um, yeah, he taught a class at City College that I took. And by then, this was after college, I was getting more into fiction and I was reading um, writers from the African, um, I'm sorry, from yep, the, yes, the Harlem Renaissance. Okay. So I was reading uh, Langston Hughes and I read Dorothy West. Um, and then the Chinua Achebe taught, um, basically taught about himself, but it was an, that <laughs> also was an African literature class, but he was talking a lot about his book, Things Fall Apart. And he had this essay that he had written um, challenging uh, Joseph Conrad's um, oh. inclusion in the canon because Conrad was so racist. Um, and Chinua Achebe's perspective was that Conrad got it all wrong. And that was, his, that was what um, compelled him to write Things Fall Apart. So mm -hmm. to write about the African experience pre-colonialism and as it was happening. Um, so that had an influence on me. And then I took a class with uh, Stella Adler, mm. who taught modern playwrights. And that had a really big influence because she taught script interpretation. So she was teaching us like how to look at the, the writer's biography and the fact that they were writing about the social elements of their world and through these personal characters. Mm. And that was something I think that stuck with me. When I look back at my body of work, that's something that, that tends to always happen. I'm looking at the larger context of the world that these characters are in and then very specifically, you know, elements specific to these characters, but within a context of, you know, class, race, whatever, um, a particular time in the U.S., which Light Skin Gone to Waste is, you know, very specific to the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, so I think all of that, I, I I got a lot from all of that. And her those playwrights were O'Neill, um, Strindberg, Ibsen, um, and George Bernard Shaw. Mm. Yeah, the the piece you talk about where, where Achebe challenged, more than challenges, you know, um conrad i i've taught that for i've taught things fall apart probably like 10 years mm. some high school sophomores usually and we, we always start with that piece really so i'm glad you mentioned that yeah he was so funny to he was <laughs> i loved him but he was so arrogant in that <laughs> class um, i mean it was it was very entertaining but he also he came over i'm not even sure where he came over from but he came and he had so much going on that he was always leaving class. So like uh -huh. it was this running joke that he would say, next week, I will not be here. Uh -huh. <laughs> he was, always had something better to do than come to our class. Oh <laughs> but, but that stuck with me. Like he was passionate about that. Yes. Did, now this was before his accident, before he was in a wheelchair. This was, uh, it was 87. Okay. So I don't know when, when that was. I don't remember. I don't think he was in a wheelchair, but it, what, when was his accident? 
I, I don't, I don't know. Actually, I, it was probably the late eighties, early nineties. Okay. I think I'm not even sure. Yeah. Okay. It's one thing to have like to read a textbook is nothing to have the textbook written by the professor. Yeah. Did you read the next one? No longer at ease. I didn't. Okay. I didn't, unfortunately. I, you know, I, things fall apart is always a powerful one to teach for sure. The, the last part of that book to me, which is like when the missionary is giving his little talk at the end to me is just uh, an incredible ending, incredibly depressing, dark, as much as you like or don't like or hate Okonkwo, you know, he works his whole life to get a name for himself. And in the end, that missionary is like, yeah, we might, might give him a paragraph or so mm. in this book I'm writing, you know, this, you know, called something like the primitive tribes, you know, very just missionary patronizing to say the least, but anyways, yeah. Incredible book. Um, so that's, that's so cool that you were taught by him, man. Stella Adler. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm not thinking of the book. I can't think of the book right now. I don't know if you've happened to read Isaac Butler wrote a book in the last year or two about kind of like the history of method acting. Oh, no, I didn't. I should look for that. But I have read other ones. This titles escape me right now. But I, uh -huh. I had one that that we had one of one of my acting teachers at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute had us uh -huh. read. But it wasn't it, it wasn't that that this was like 35, 40 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. no, it was, uh, there it is. It's literally called The Method. And uh, yeah, I I just started. I, I think I'm gonna be able to talk to him hopefully months down the road. But um, oh, OK, are you interested in, in acting? I am. I am. I, I mean, you had you'd be a great person to talk to. I. I think sometimes that we give to, you know, we talk about these actors and actresses as if they're gods on Earth. You know, and I guess because I don't know about acting, um, you know, I just it's such a it's such a mystery to me. And, you know, you see something like you see Pacino and Godfather. You see, I think, of, I don't know, Meryl Streep in that in that movie where she plays the mother of like the family in Oklahoma. I'm not describing it very well. I don't know. Tom Hanks at the end of certain, you know, just like incredible acting, you know, anything that yeah. Denzel, anything that Denzel's in. So I'm just I'm just so amazed at like, how do you how do you get into that? You know, you know, there are people who talk about like they do a method, uh -huh. like Christian Bale or some of that. You know what I mean? He loses like yeah. 100 pounds or he gains yeah. 100 pounds or. I think there's multiple components to uh -huh. it. But what appealed to me, what I understood as a kid was the way in method acting, you're not impo you're not going from the outside in mm -hmm. like you're not being you're not pretending to be a character. You're using your authentic emotions and and making those work for what you need um in the scenes so in in the in method acting like you you go through a series of sensory exercises so you start with something really simple you create a cup of coffee and and you just like try to you know you you create that you you go through all the senses like what does it smell like what does it feel like what's the temperature what is what does it taste like and then you slowly like you work up to more complicated exercises like where you're using substitution so you create a person who gives you a certain feeling like you might <laughs> you might create a narcissistic mother that okay. you might need you know in order to be in a particular scene with another narcissist but mm -hmm. the the way that that person affects your emotions is something that you you can use so it's like you have this toolbox of all these exercises that you've practiced and then you can pull them out you know when when you need and 
and that may be a, a simplification of it, but that was something that appealed to me as, yeah. as an actor that I could, like, I was always feeling very dramatic and, and, you know, when you're a teenager and your hormones are raging, like you're always emotional. So I was always like, Oh, I can use this. <laughs> and I like, you know, try to do a scene like, Oh, I'm crying. What can I, what can I, what can I work on? You know? Um, and I feel like that's kind of the way that I've approached writing also. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the same method, like, you know, using things that really make me feel. So if I'm not, if I'm not feeling emotionally engaged mm -hmm. when I'm writing, then it's not working for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I have to feel something or I don't care, you know? I appreciate that. I got, you know, I was going to ask you next about like the just connections between all the different um, types of art and creativity that you're involved with and in writing, especially writing fiction. That makes sense. I, I, I didn't, I was pretty inarticulate when I was describing it just now about like my interest in, in acting. I think, I think it's just about like, you know, I think so many of us, myself included, we, we, I think we know it when we see it, we know great acting or we, we yeah. think we do. It's just, it's just so hard to define it, to detail it, to objectify. For me, I think it's authenticity. I think uh, you can feel uh -huh. when somebody is actually pulling up something that is not make believe, but mm -hmm. feels authentic to them, sure. even though it's not them. It's yeah. a it's a different character, but their instrument is creating everything that would be present emotionally mm -hmm. if that if they were that person. And so there's a difference, like when you when you can tell that somebody's pushing an emotion or they're trying to show you, they're trying to show you an emotion rather than allowing it to just authentically and naturally mm. kind of come through. I think sense. we can feel the difference. So when you feel, when you watch Meryl Streep and she, you know that she's really in it, that it that it's, it's, it's really something that she is going through mentally and emotionally and physically like it's all it's all happening mm -hmm. it's all it's all there she's not she's not pretending <laughs> you know right it's right. like oh. you you want to make people believe you you want to make people feel like they're watching or you know an authentic experience happening. i appreciate that very uh well articulated thank you <laughs>
ways that people say things and editors often want to like change that like if, if somebody if a character says something that just sounds a little bit off they want to change it to make it sound more like what we're used to and I always resist that because no like what what's exciting and interesting to me about it is the specificity mm -hmm. and the unique way that these people talk um, and so sometimes that inspiration happens while I'm writing like uh, it's it's almost like I get into like some sort of a, a a songwriting flow but it's it's just words without music but it but I almost hear it like music and so that's mm. that's inspiring but it 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 on you know it happens sometimes and sometimes it doesn't like with with Maddie who's based on me she doesn't really have that <laughs> like her her manner of speech like isn't as fun as mm the other characters, mm -hmm. you know? um, but yeah, so I am inspired by memory. I mean, I do do things to, to be in, inspired, but I can't say that I can point to like yeah. these things. Like for example, I collect art. So I do, you know, I do love to collect art. I love to go see art in museums. I just recently went to an exhibit here in LA, the um, Henry Taylor's The B-Side, and I was okay. totally inspired by that, by, by use of color. And mm -hmm. I did, to go home and I was work. there's a story that I'm working on and I mm -hmm. used the color yellow in that story because he used the color yellow to uh, to kind of set a, a, an optimistic kind of idea and I was like oh that's great I mean yeah. like, but you know and so I am inspired by other things I'm inspired by music like in my first book I was really inspired by um Santana's um song your Santana's version of Europa which he played mm. on guitar but then Gato Barbieri re-recorded that song and both both versions are part of the book uh -huh. and both versions when I listen to them I'm just like transported and mm -hmm. mind blown and just like I feel incredibly inspired so there's different there's different things that I think inspire me at different times but I, I can't say that I have like one fail safe go-to that oh if i do this i'm definitely going to be inspired and it'll make me write more yeah, like yeah, yeah. I, I can't really predict what they are i just feel them when they happen <laughs> can you can you remind me of abby's last name the abby goldberg goldberg so do you have any real life uh one of those abby goldberg paintings hell no <laughs> no but they existed um, my sister gave a couple of them away when our father died um she might have some i yeah. do not and yeah, get them, get them not away. want get them away. any of them but oh, my father had tons of them <laughs> yeah oh um, they were so gross Oh I actually have Sorry pictures to bring on my Instagram. If you go to my Instagram, like okay. you have to go way deep into the Instagram, but there's yeah. two pictures that I took I took pictures of because I was like, if I don't photograph this, uh -huh. no one is going to believe me that this <laughs> actually exists. But those things are on there and they existed and they were horrible. <laughs> horrible. Sorry to bring that back. Um, <laughs> but... You know, here's here's my here's my here's my horrible segue. Well, there's from bad art to good art, your work. Eh? <laughs> the most generic. Um, I love to talk about. You know, I mean, we're living in this world of 2023 where it's just like you know, people are saying you know we don't teach about Rosa Parks that she was you know she wasn't pushed to the back of the bus because of the color of her skin. It was just that's just because they didn't want her to sit there, right? I'm I'm 
oversimplifying it, but there oh. are, you know, pl- you know, places where, <laughs> well, that's well, a lie. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying there. I mean, there, there are books I'm, I'm, I'm going to point to Florida It's probably Florida. I might be wrong, but that's what they're saying. You know, they're changing it to, you know, uh, so-and-so, you know, who was, uh, who spoke up for Japanese Americans in the internment camps, you know, Oh, he, you know, he had a difference of opinion, that kind of stuff. They're taking, oh. they're, they're sanitizing, you know, history. Yeah. But did you ways, hear right? they're now mandating um, AAPPI um, instruction? Like they have to teach that Thank to God. the exclusion of any black history or indigenous uh, history. Okay. Um, it, that's a, that's a white supremacist, mm. you know, tool <laughs> mm. to like pit mm. one group. Like these are the good minorities uh, against another um okay, yeah. but i'm sorry to cut you off no, 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 no. that just happened like three or four days ago and so it's like fresh in my well, mind. so so what i'm getting to is you know you you did was it 98 or so you did a uh, ruby yeah. bridges yeah right that the disney movie um yeah. you know i mean ruby bridges is still with us she's not that old she's younger than my <laughs> parents you know i mean it, for, for people who want to say oh this happened you know hundreds of years ago right. and that right. was 1960 when she right Right. So, you know, um, in Florida, they, they, you know, whether it was one, it sounds like it was maybe one parent who was, um, you know, right. challenging the movie saying, oh, second, second grader, they're going to learn that, you know, um, black people yeah. hate white people or, you know, whatever, right. reverse racism or some other BS. I would, I would, yeah. I wonder what you um, kind of the pure intentions, the intentions you had in making that movie and then just kind of how you feel about it. 25 years later um, with all this, this madness about being challenged. I had been, um, I had studied this. I probably shouldn't bring this up because I can't even remember his name right now, but I had studied this photographer in, um, I I took a a long course, a a cinema course in um, at Los Angeles city college. And I studied this photographer who had been a photographer during the war in Japan. And he used this phrase to describe one of his photographs. He said that he wanted to, to people to feel compassionate horror mm. or um, as he mm. uh, showed them these images. And, and that was in my mind. I mean, I wrote the movie before I heard that word, but when I won the Humanitas Prize, I used that again because it appropriately showed um, and said what what I felt like if you watch what this little girl goes through unless you're like really dead inside you almost can't help but feel compassionate horror for this little girl mm-hmm. um and so that was that was certainly something that I um that I wanted audiences to feel but I also wanted people to be able to empathize with this little girl and her family, not just the little girl, but her family as well. Her family is part of the the movie. And I mean, it shouldn't be that difficult, but even, even 25 years ago, it was hard to convince the powers that be in Hollywood that white audiences would feel compassion mm. for, for some of these characters. Like it was hard to get things made. So even then, it it was hard to convince, you know, executives and, and producers in the movie business that that these films would work, that people would have compassion for these kinds of characters. So this film got made because of not not actually only because of Ruby, but because Robert Coles, who was Ruby's psychiatrist, um, 
sold his children's book to, to Scholastic. And he happened to be friends with um, Marion Reese, who was the producer. Okay. And so that's how that happened. And then when, when Ruby came on, uh, she told me that she didn't even know about the book. Like mm. nobody had contacted her about Whoa. the Scholastic book. She found out because she had a friend, I believe, who worked at Scholastic and showed her the book and said, you know, did you know about this? And so then like throughout the development of the film, they were trying to get her life rights and she was resisting some of the provisions in that contract. So, um, so she re resisted that, but ultimately, you know, I, I think it, it was great for her. Um, and she was able, so they were trying to prevent her from being able to publish her own stuff after the movie, they wanted to like own everything, but that, you know, she was able to fight that, I guess, because she has since published like a, a couple of things. Yeah. And she yeah. sent me the book. I don't know if you can see the poster, but she, um, oh, I yeah. That and oh, she, yeah. She gave me that and signed it. Yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> well, well, yeah, just about kind of, I guess, how you look at it now, um, just 25 years later. Yeah. And... I can say that I've heard from teachers over the years, I mean, it's been a long time and teachers say that, and even parents say that their kids absolutely empathize with Ruby and they don't have to be black kids or children of color, like all kids, they, they just relate. They're like this little girl, like, why are those people being so mean mm. to that little girl? Like they get it. And I think that that, that is what was good about the film. It's that it's it's an introduction for younger kids mm -hmm. to be able to see the humanity in somebody different and to understand that they went through adversity at that age. And, and I think that that's, that's kind of shocking to younger children because they're not used to, you know, seeing a, a little child go through something that mm -hmm. frightening and, mm -hmm and and being the subject of scorn um mm. so the woman who challenged the film um said that it was that it was it would teach children that white people don't like black people and it would teach them about slurs no i think what the film teaches children is how to have empathy for somebody who's not mm. them who's not like them Sure. I think that's what it teaches them. Um, sure. So they lost. I mean, they the the board voted on it, and and they thought that you know there wasn't any reason why they shouldn't show the film, and so Good. it was banned for a, a, a short period, and it was kind of a big to do, and it was in the news, and it was infuriating. It was so silly, and it was it was absolutely because of DeSantis. DeSantis has put these parental rights laws in place. And so that gives any parent the right to challenge yeah. something yeah. and then, yeah. you know, remove it, not just for their child, but for everybody, which is insane. Like, I think that parent has every right not to let her child watch that film. If I were a parent, mm -hmm. I would want that right to say, no, I don't want my kid <clears throat> in this class, but not to remove it from e for everybody in a public school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. That's privilege. <laughs> That's oh, you're right. Oh my god! <laughs> Not to gloss over, you've had so many other um, successes since, well-deserved awards, and the most recent is is Light Skin Gone to Waste, and here is the book. You, people are listening, but trust me, the cover is awesome, very colorful, very seventies, right? 
I love the cover. I did not design that cover, but that is me on the cover. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So oh. I sent, I submitted like some pictures to them and they used that, but I thought the cover designer, I think her name is Erin Kirk did amazing, an amazing job. She's definitely, really talented. Definitely. Um, I wonder about some seeds for the book um, and some of the like benefits or drawbacks of, of doing fact versus fiction. You can, you know, you can talk to us about how much of it you feel like is autobiographical, how much maybe is, is um kind of unintended to be unintendedly if that's a word unintendedly autobiographical but kind of just seeds of, of doing it though it's fiction you know i think a lot of times you know people are gonna gonna i mean it's, it's about the town where you grew up for the most part and, and similar experiences what it was like to put yourself out there and while it's not autobiography it's close ish it's very close um so all of the stories were inspired either by my own memories or by stories that I was told. So mm. up that hill, I wasn't around for, but both my mm. father and my sister told me their versions mm. of that story. And mm -hmm. my mother denied the story. Um, wow. my mother, <laughs> so my father would say, my father and I would have these arguments um, about, cause you know, clearly my dad was not that interested in being around black people. And that was, that was an issue for me as a young black woman, like sort of trying to find where I fit in. Mm -hmm. And my father would say, when we moved to Monroe, I came in with guns. And my mother would say, oh, your father doesn't know what he's talking about. That's bullshit. <laughs> but my sister said, oh no, I was there. I saw, I saw those guns. I saw the guy come and go with daddy and walk around the cul-de-sac and oh, i was like okay. wow <laughs> so I, the book, huh? avery yeah um, uh -huh. and so i you know listened to those stories and thought about them for years and then and then so that that's that one everything else i think is you know just inspired by memories but where i different differ from maddie is that i i didn't really go i did study singing but i didn't really go into musical theater and i okay. didn't ever play the piano as well as I would say Maddie plays. <laughs> um, but I, um, I went into acting instead. So, but uh -huh. you know, the, the, it is pretty autobiographical. And of course there were, you know, you, you would read scenes where there's no way I was there because I was a child. Um, so a lot of that is imagination based on kind of sure. what I know, what I, what I heard, um, what I imagine. So yes, it's like, it's fiction, but it's autobiographical fiction. Is it, was it hard to have like a sort of objective distance or is that even desirable? It wasn't as hard because I was so much older by the time yeah. I started writing this. It was hard. Like I started writing about myself when I was 19 mm. and that was too soon. <laughs> Um, it was easier, like in the, you know, in the story, time travel, she says, like, t in another 20 years, I'll be softer inside and out, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like when, you know, when with time, you do have more of an ability to have to, to, to look at things from other people's point of view, to be a little bit less judgmental, to have mm -hmm. compassion even even towards somebody who hurt you, um, mm. you can understand the context a little better. Not not that I you know have so much compassion for people who hurt me, but I have more now than I had you know thirty five years ago when I was still so angry. Like I don't I don't think I'm as angry anymore. I can get angry when I sort of 
put myself back in there. Like I could writing the stories, you know, some of the stuff that happened was, it was infuriating and I was remembering it and, and, it, and it did make me mad, but I do, you know, all these years later, I have enough distance that I, I can write about it um, in a more dimensional way than I would have been able to um, mm. if I'd done it sooner. I appreciate that. I want to, I'm like oh, I want to touch on it now, but I'll I'll save it for the idea of like kind of like the optimism at the end of the book at, at the end of the collection with time travel. The first story is called Up That Hill. It's Monroe, New York, 1962. This is you know, Dr. Philip Arrington or Phil, um, one of his quotes is, um, or one of the quotes from the narrator is, if being a lone pioneer is what it costs to enjoy this small town beauty, he'll pay. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, getting away from the, from the, from the Bronx or from the boroughs of New York <laughs> city. Right. Mm -hmm. um, Phil is, he's not, not a what's the word he's not a shrinking violet but he's a little bit more laid back velma is definitely more outspoken right his wife um dell is a person who i think is like leasing the house or he sells mm -hmm. the house to them he leases it yeah right i mean he's a hospitable person but it but he's also you know he definitely registers surprise when he sees like a black man right mm -hmm. you know buying the house and then there's but just to be fair that would have been surprising in 1962 in that town like okay. it, it, just, it just would be yeah um, if you don't know like especially since it's you know and this this was fictional but especially since the the conceit is that it was his nephew who connected him right 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 um you know there's then there's just the outright racism there's there's the rock that goes through the house mm -hmm. um there's jack wilson who calls and, and you know threatening mm -hmm. um and then you know there are the signs that they use the racial slurs and are i i hope that that was not true to life no that's true why would i <laughs> why would you make that up there yeah. would no there would be no point to me i mean that's part of the reason to explore the story it's like why would why do these people stay in this town that you know where they didn't feel wanted but but eventually you know they they did stay they my parents loved that town mm -hmm. my dad kept a practice there after he sold a house and didn't live there anymore he was in new york city but he still had a practice in monroe Mm -hmm. like they they had a different experience though when you're a professional you can curate your relationships in a way that you can't when you're sure. a child and you're going to public school with everybody you can't sure. you know everyone has access to you when you're a professional you have a social life like you have your mm -hmm. patients who come to you and then you have the people that you choose to hang out with it's just not like that when you're a kid I always wonder, you know, about people who experience such just in your face racism, like like the signs and stuff like that. Did so do, does does Phil, does he convince himself like this is just the cost of, you know, you know, some people are like that. And it's just I can't change that. Does he is he ignorant to the fact that that there is so much hate? Um, does he not care? How would you maybe kind of. Um, I don't I think he's ignorant to the fact that there's hate because he, you know, was a, in his 30s in the 60s. Like he he knew, you know, what racism was. Experienced. He was very, very light skinned, mm -hmm. but he wasn't white. Um, so mm -hmm. it wasn't that he was ignorant. I think that similar to my mother, he just felt that 
it was his right to refuse be kept out if that's where he wanted to be mm. that if there wasn't a legal precedent for him to, to keep him out it wasn't there were no jim crow laws these were like more you know in quiet front. laws yeah, like yeah. you know there's another story that's that's in a future collection where they do buy their house and the real estate agent lies to them and tells them that the house is in escrow but mm -hmm. he doesn't realize that the people who are selling the house are jews and they are not interested in discriminating against mm. this family and they they do sell them the house but these are the types of things that that happen and and i think my parents felt that if they allowed themselves to be pushed out that they that they were letting themselves you know be segregated and they didn't want that they wanted the they wanted the opportunity to expand their lives and to, yeah. and to have a bigger life um mm. and so they they took that but i mean i think that my dad may have had some not ignorance but just sort of denial um about like certain Wilfred things is willful ignorance a too strong of a word um i mean i just think it's like denial like i i think that he felt like he could i mean just similar to like how obama felt he could win over the republicans if he was nice and convivial and mm -hmm. like tried no, mm -hmm. like some people just don't want you. Mm -hmm. Some people are never going to accept you. But but a lot of people did accept them. So mm -hmm. that was one neighborhood. They didn't stay in that neighborhood. They moved to another neighborhood. And at okay. the other neighborhood, there there weren't the same kind of protests. There were some people who didn't like them, but there mm -hmm. but it wasn't like rocks or, you know, people standing outside their house picketing. So I think they probably felt that, you know, as as time moved on, it would be OK. And they weren't the only black people in the town. There was a there was a professional um, black dentist in the town mm. who had been there his whole life. And and that man, you know, that was an example to them. Like, well, if he can do it and he had a practice, mm -hmm. he practiced as a dentist in that town. And so I think they figured if that can happen, then we'll, we'll be okay. Like mm. there's always going to be some people, but it wasn't the, it wasn't like the entire town came out and said, mm. get out of here. It was a small group of people in this one community mm -hmm. that felt threatened because socioeconomically they weren't better than these black people. And they didn't like that. Mm. You know, similar to, to the whole Ruby Bridges thing. It's like, if you're at the bottom, you know, rung of class and somebody who you think should be way beneath you is at your level, that's threatening. Mm. But some other people, if you're secure in your in your class, in your station, maybe you're not so threatened by somebody else, you know, who's different coming in. Sure. Um, you know, some of the, the greatness of this book is just like the the juxtaposition of like the naivete of like the kids, Maddie, Livia, um, you know, talk about like with Ruby Bridges, like how do you not feel for her more even because she's so young and mm -hmm. innocent. Right. Um, you know, so we have the really, so we have like Livia who's really naive um, as kids are right. As to what's going on in the town. Mm -hmm. And then of course the story claiming Tobias, which I think is the second one. Mm -hmm. That's uh, I mean, that's a really sad one because it's just like the world getting in the way and putting these ideas in Tobias's head. How would you describe the the before and the after of Tobias' relationship with Maddie and then 
and then the the break the rupture that's on his side I think that was my first heartbreak um, that I recall and Maddie's first heartbreak um yeah. that's like the first wound that was the the first memory that I had where I thought I I had a friend where I thought I was fitting in and then I wasn't um and that it still hurts it's still raw I bet. I bet. homegoing reunites them in their 40s Mm. Um, that's fiction though they don't reunite and therefore yeah. <laughs> like I did not reunite with Tobias yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but I was curious about what would that look like yeah is uh, I mean you talk about like years later and, and I don't I don't think forgiveness is the exact word you use but being able to be softer right mm -hmm. I mean do you do you look back and whether this person you know that that kid or just others who who mistreated you or were racist and all kinds of horrible things like is that a personal fault? Is that society? If we just kind of like pawn it off on, oh, society, is that just kind of like, you know, getting rid of personal responsibility? How, how do you kind of look at that? I think in the in the case of Monroe, it was just, it was partly the dominant culture, like American culture, the way mm -hmm. America saw people of color, Black people in particular at that time, like in the 60s with civil rights, the hoses, the dogs, like, you know, Typically in the 60s, if black people were on TV, it was on the news, they, it was criminal. There was a very negative perspective. And Monroe just kind of mimicked that same culture. And so if you were a person who grew up in Monroe and you didn't really know black people, if all you saw was what you saw on the news, then you thought black people were negative. You didn't know that there were educated black people, that there were black people who had came from good families, um, who were not poor, who were not criminal, you didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so those ideas, you know, these maybe weren't the most intellectually curious people about people other than themselves. They didn't know. So they just decided this, this was the truth. This was what they saw. That was what they could point to. Look at that criminal on the news. Look at those black people like, screaming for rights like they should know their play like these were ideas that were coming from the larger culture filtering into this culture and the culture of this town was largely con very conservative although there was a small liberal group there were you know there was a jewish temple and mm. my parents friends were mostly those people but mm. not everybody who wasn't jewish was racist there were people there that were nice to them. They had friends. I had friends. It wasn't like a hundred percent of the town was, you know, virulent racist. Um, mm. It what I would say maybe 30% or more of the town. I would say 75% of the town were people that were probably racist, but of those 75%, they weren't all vocal or physical in there. It was more quiet. But then there were there was a small group that were that were ver vocal. Like I, I think, you know, if I were to say like who was in that 75%, mm. some of those people were my friends. Mm. Like they liked me, mm. but they didn't like black people. Mm. They were okay with me, but if they, but they would be suspicious of any other black person and, and their ideas about what was possible for black people to do mm -hmm. would have been racist. Like they would, I remember when Obama was elected and thinking back to those kids who threw rocks at me 
remember the kinds of things that they said. They were they were constantly saying negative things about black people and what they couldn't do and what they weren't able to do and would never be able to do. And I thought about that even then. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that guy had a daughter who loved Ruby Bridges. He found me on Facebook and said, my daughter watches Ruby Bridges. And, you know, she says, go, Ruby, go. And I'm thinking, yeah, and you used to throw rocks at me and call me the N-word. Wow. Oh How far we've come. It's great. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, yeah, there's that scene where, um, I forget which story is, there's that scene where there's a sleepover and Maddie's cousin is there. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of, like, stereotypes about her as, like, a black woman, black girl, a black girl from mm -hmm. New York, from the city, right? Like, yeah. Just expectations. Yeah. Right. Claiming, sorry, uh, Lucky is really a turning point um, story. Mm -hmm. And it's a trip to West Africa. And, you know, the name comes from like multiple times throughout the story. Like, you know, mom and dad are like, hey, do you know how lucky you are, Maddie, to be able to go, mm -hmm. to be able to travel? We've been to, you know, all these different countries in Europe and, you know, all over the world. Mm -hmm. And they go to, you know, the continent. They go to Ivory Coast and other parts of West Africa, you know, um, Maddie's is stunned or maybe not stunned, but surprised or upset to see, you know, even there there's colonialism and, you know, not a lot of white people around, but they're the ones who are telling, you know, the, the black Africans what to do and such, but the parents are bickering a lot. I mean, that goes throughout the book. Phil, Phil is not so good with monogamy. Let's just say, right. <laughs> does he, does a quick aside here, does he just, does he just, is that just a straight lie that he says that Velma is okay with the, with the, uh, poly, poly, polygamy that they have an open relationship does he kind of just say that and try to think, speak it into existence or does she agree kind of no um that's complicated i wouldn't say that she agreed but she didn't want to get divorced and that and those yeah. were the terms she didn't want to get divorced and in new york at that time it wasn't as easy to get a divorce as it is now um mm -hmm. you had to prove um right. that the, you had to prove something what was it I can't even remember the, the term right now, but my father wanted out of that marriage. She didn't want to be divorced. Um, she wanted the financial benefit. And so there was a point where in which she, she, and I don't think she ever wanted this, but I think she did sort of say to herself, well, he can do whatever he wants as long as I get to still maintain style and that and and i get to maintain this facade mm -hmm. of, of a marriage which wasn't didn't go very well because the the um you know the, they were one of the only black couples in the town and he was doing stuff in the area and so people knew so i think it was very embarrassing for her mm -hmm. but it wasn't it wasn't as simple as she said okay yes we can have an open relationship because she wasn't interested in that right but he was the financially more powerful partner in the relationship and she felt dependent on him financially mm -hmm. and so she felt like she had no choice but to accept it yeah thank you for that so they they want to go see the sites when they're there. They're they feel restricted because Maddie's with them. Phil says some of the effect of like, you know, you we didn't get you a babysitter for this the night because quote the world doesn't revolve around you doesn't mm -hmm. revolve around her. You know, there is there is a scene where there's the the male teenage male teenager who becomes a babysitter and they're like, wait a minute, like at the hotel, and like wait a minute, this is supposed to be we, we want a woman and they don't follow they don't follow through when they call over like, hey, can we get right? And they leave and they do leave her. Um, and so that's, you know, the scene where there is, where there's sexual abuse. 
um, which obviously is incredibly traumatic and really informs so much of the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. That title is so resonant and gripping and sad and, and upsetting, you know, um, because again, it's like, do you know how lucky you are? Well, she's, she's not lucky. She was, mm-hmm. she was the victim of, of sexual abuse, sexual assault. I wonder how, how difficult that story ha- was to write, to, to read. That to... one was, that one was difficult. <laughs> yeah. That one was really difficult. And, um, and my, my editor was Roxanne Gay. The great yeah. one. Yeah. And in my original uh, version of the story, more like how I remembered it, which was my parents didn't hesitate. <laughs> mm. They, you know, the babysitter showed up, the car was there and they left. But Roxanne said, what kind of parents would just like leave their kid? And I was like, my Um, (laughs) my kind of parents Um, uh but she said i just don't think readers are going to believe that i think you're going to have to add something so that it makes it believable that they that they might have done that and so i had to i had to work to to create that that resistance Mm -hmm. um but yeah the 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 word lucky um has i mean it 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 came up into my 50s like that's how they saw, you know, from their perspective, I was lucky to grow up where I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And they like they they at, they speak as if there was no other alternative, which isn't true. And I didn't know that until I was an adult in my 20s. Uh, I didn't know that there were other middle class black communities that I could have grown up in. I now have friends who grew up in those communities. Um, I didn't know they existed mm-hmm. until I was older. Um, even though like two of my cousins grew up in, in that kind of community and had a house in Sag Harbor, but I, I just, I wasn't, I didn't get it. I was too young to really Mm -hmm. understand. My parents made me think that our family was an anomaly. I see that most black families weren't like ours and maybe most weren't, but there were plenty of middle-class, upper middle-class black families with more money than our family. Mm-hmm. And I was not exposed to any of that until I left Monroe, until mm-hmm. I was living on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was angry. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so I was always called lucky. Like I, you know, compared to my parents' lives, I was lucky compared to their lives. Um well financially maybe but... from their perspective, yeah. Right. Yeah, I just think that, you know, that that is so it's so resonant, those scenes and that story. And so upsetting because, you know, I mean, I think so many of us can relate to this idea of like the next generation, like, oh, man, when I was a kid, you know, or when your grandparents and they lived in the Depression and they grew up in poverty. Mm-hmm. And I get that. But unfortunately, the very singular, well, it's unfortunately not as singular as it should be. The being in a, you know, being a victim of, of sexual abuse is, is is so upsetting. Yeah, that that was really hard to write. Um, but I but once I finished that story, I felt like, OK, like I don't have to. I don't have to dwell on it anymore. But what makes it difficult is um, there's still a lack of responsibility. Like neither of my parents were able to really take responsibility for what happened. And so that kept my anger going. So I didn't tell my mother for 10 years. And then another 10 years, I told my father and neither of them, like, (laughs) of course, like my mother's answer was, well, that was your father's fault. Like, and that's sort of, a, you know, a recurring line, like anything. Yeah. It's like, you hit me. That was your father's fault. <laughs> you know, like, 
there's no responsibility. There's, there's no accountability for, for their participation in anything that was bad. It was always somebody else's fault. Um, and that's, that's part of the narcissistic personality. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I know I'm, I'm, I would guess catharsis is too strong of a word, but I hope you were able to experience, like you said, some sort of catharsis cleansing, freeing a bit. I did. And I don't like to read that story over again sure, because it sure. is, it is really hard. Um, but I, I do, I'm, I am glad that I did and that it's done. And part of it was that it, like, I wasn't able to share that story really with, with anybody. I, I didn't start talking about it until like, I didn't tell my mom till I was 18. And then mm -hmm. I didn't tell anybody else until my twenties, but my parents just seemed like unable to accept it. Whereas when I told other people, I got some empathy, which like I wasn't used to getting. And so just, mm -hmm. just being seen and heard um, was a, was healing in a way. Like yeah. when, when somebody's telling you, Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, come on. Just that happened. Like my mom said she was assaulted when she was a little girl. I'm like, oh, of course you were. <laughs> you know, like mm. I wasn't able to just like have a have this thing and and have have anyone feel empathy for me. It was right. it was just you were lucky. Like get over it. it you mm. know. Um, and so having having the experience of sharing the story, having people sort of validate my experience, um, that was that was partially um, a healing experience mm. for me. So. I'm glad it's done. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Um, we well, yes, you know, another turning point was, you know, Phil basically walks in or on Velma basically slapping Maddie mm -hmm. and that, you know, that's really upsetting to him. Um, you know, so he, he tries, I guess he does advocate for Maddie, but also he's, you know, like you talk about, he's a messy father. He's, mm -hmm. he's flaunting his relationships. I mean, he, he brings over Maddie like to meet the girlfriend, to meet the girlfriends, you know, in the family, there's that awkwardness with, um, I want to say Flora. Flora's the daughter, right, of Abby, mm -hmm. the girlfriend. Yeah. And, you know, she makes some some comments that people would call now microaggressions or worse, mm -hmm. you know. But it's just awkward to say the least, you know, being around the, the daughter of your dad's, what do they call it? crazy? Like, yeah. I, I just thought, you know, so this this was based on real experience. And I just thought, how could I not write about this? It's yeah. insane. It's insane, yeah. right? My dad did that. That they did that. That both that both that woman and my father did that. Would like uh, put us together, and there, you know, there was just something I felt like I didn't know yeah. evidence, but you know, kids are perceptive, right? Yes. There's a story with the way we fell out of touch, which is has the two narrators, mm -hmm. which I think is the only story in the collection that has that. Mm -hmm. Right. There's Velma and there's Gertie. Gertie, who was the the babysitter, the maid. I don't know what the term would the be. Housekeeper, yeah. The housekeeper, the right? Movie. So this is like in 2005. So it's obviously a flash forward. And that was a story, again, that was really upsetting and really, but really well done. Um, you know, and that Gertie seems to be like unlucky in love. Mm -hmm. She's older, right? She seems to be very pure, like, uh, you know, kind hearted, big hearted. A, a, you know, a huge part of all of their lives really, you know, I would, it seems like there's love there between Maddie and her and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And she's pining after Arthur and he seems like such a great guy, such a gentleman, her one true love. And then when there's a chance, you know, for them to get back together after, sorry if I'm plotting, swelling a little bit, <laughs> we find out he's got some really hateful parts of him. Yeah. And I, I'm like, not sure you know? that the 
Yeah, I'm not sure that the word that he uses um, is considered as hate was considered as hateful then as mm -hmm. we would consider. Like it was definitely a slur, but so the word he he uses is schwarza, uh -huh. and. and people know now that you're not supposed to say that, but I'm not sure like in that time in the mid, like early seventies or mid seventies mm. when that was um, like, yes, it, it was, it was such a negative thing, but I don't think it was exactly the same as the way that Gertie's mother was like hurling slurs, like okay. right at him. Like he, right. he didn't say it to, he didn't, you know, yell it to their faces he he said it privately to his wife um but yeah i mean i i i don't think the impact is any less i just like in his defense i i just think that he might not have seen it as you know well i'm being hateful yeah. i think he might have just seen it as like that's you know they are different they are you shouldn't be working for them because mm -hmm. they should they are supposed to be the lowest <laughs> rung on the ladder and you deserve better than that um so from his point of view it was like his kindness towards his wife like uh -huh. from the reader's point of view it's like oh ah, i didn't see that coming exactly exactly <laughs> the, the impact the impact it's just like man they had i don't know how many years gertie was with them they had so many good years so many good times she was so good for them they were mostly yeah. good for her yeah like the family was good for her and yeah. then just for it to just like like that to be done with is like oh man. Um, Unfortunately, it's... like I, that that is just kind of that is what happened. So um, according to my mother, she came and then she never saw her again. Yes. Um, so oh so it it was what happened, but it it wasn't a big dramatic thing at, mm -hmm. at the time. It was just like she saw the look on his face yeah. and she knew. She just knew. That he he didn't know, so Ger I just think Gertie didn't tell people, mm -hmm. and I think Gertie also appreciated my mother, even though she saw, I'm sure she saw my mother's flaws. I think she appreciated that my mother gave her a chance. Yeah, if she had had a nervous breakdown, and because of our family's, you know, my father being in the mental health business, my mom was like, Meh, she could still clean. Right, right, right. It, right, it right. didn't. It didn't. It, she wasn't afraid to hire. Somebody yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, with with the story, I mean, I, we just talked about there's there are flashbacks and flash forwards, but you know, there it, it is a thematically linked or they are linked short stories, so there is a progression chronologically. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm staying away from some plot spoilers, but um, you know, towards the end, she she Maddie wants to go to that party. She wants to meet. Is it Zeke? Yes. Right. One of the few black um, kids in the area. She's yeah. really into him. She really wants to show off for not show off, but just, you know, meet him and get to know him yeah. and, and who knows. And that's when I think, Oh, that's, so that's when her, her father basically says, Hey, you're going to babysit. And yeah. she's like, are you kidding me? Like this is very <laughs> for, right. And this is where he, you know, does the whole like, Oh, woe is Maddie. Yeah. And you know, this is, you know, the whole, like you're lucky. Mm -hmm. Maddie blames his choices that he's made, of course. And she, she talks about leaving scars Mm -hmm. And scars obviously is such a big theme or motif of the book. Um, you know, some physical scars, these scars of, of, of parenting or lack of parenting, neglect, narcissism that you've mentioned. Um, and just this, this idea of like, almost like taunting her, right? Like, whoa, is Maddie? And she's yeah. like, she just wants to be a normal teenager. Right. Yeah. I wonder about the idea of scars 
and um, you know how she's over to I don't think overcome is the word if she is able to overcome them if there is that optimism I don't know how much you want to talk about that last story which is such an interesting and good one and, and optimistic I think I just I guess maybe just any connections between these scars and, and any sort of optimism towards the end of the book yeah I think that she does carry um but by the by the penultimate story mm-hmm. she's she's not healed from those scars mm-hmm. but then the next story coming out of the one you just referred to is time travel and she's you know she's in her 20s in the beginning of it and then she's thinking forward to her 40s mm-hmm. and she does feel um she does feel a, a sense of grace i guess for Tobias and Tobias is kind of representative of that whole Monroe experience. And so I I think she feels a a sense of maturity that she didn't have and perspective. And, and just like I articulated to you, like the Monroe was just, you know, part of the larger culture and the larger Mm -hmm. culture itself was, was racist. So it wasn't, it wasn't like it was just Monroe was all Monroe's fault. Like these were people who were exposed to the dominant culture ideas that were racist. And so that's what they reflected. Mm -hmm. And I think once Maddie's older and away from it, what she does in that story is she looks back past the negative to the beginning, like the the seed of her relationship with Tobias, which was pure. None of that other stuff had come in yet, mm-hmm. um, and so she was she was looking past all that and able to to remember this little boy and the way his face would light up when he saw her and the way that she felt the love from him. Mm-hmm. And so she was able to reach back and grab that and pull that forward through time and say. I'll be kinder to you because she remembered like who he really was, was yes. just a sweet soul. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know? He wasn't, he wasn't all this other stuff that society does impose mm-hmm. on people. Um, he was just a person. Yeah. She was just a person. And before they realized that they were different, they were mm-hmm. friends. And yeah. he, he was forgetting all the negative because people who like say mean things to you, they don't remember it. Because mm. it, it didn't hurt them. So they're not pulling that forward. They remember other things. And he remembered, you were my best, you were my first best friend. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, so there is that optimism. And, mm. and when I wrote the story initially in like 2012, this was before Trump. Mm. And I did feel optimistic. Mm. My optimism was shaken during that whole period because I was able to see all those people I grew up with from the time I was a little kid through high school. I was able to see the shit they were saying Mm. on Facebook. And I was like, oh, my God, they're still the same. Uh And that's that's not so optimistic. But I had written that story before all that. Yeah. I would rather hold on to that optimism. Oh boy, yes. But you know, I don't know. I hope we'll get there one day. Yeah, eleven years is like it's been like a century, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking back to like yeah. two thousand twelve. It's what been is- a long it's been a long I mean, every year from for the last several years has felt like a decade. Oh, seriously. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah. It, I mean, for you to be able to, you know, for all the things that, that Maddie went through in her life and to, to have an optimistic ending that's not cheesy or Mickey Mouse or contrived <laughs> was really, uh, was really an achievement. It was the story, you know, time travel by itself could, could stand by, by on its own, but just in mm -hmm. connection with, mm -hmm. um, you know, claiming Tobias, that second story, it's like, oh man, to be able to read yeah. those together um, is really interesting and, and really skillful. And there's a reason why you won all these awards. Oh, thank you. I'd love to know what you're working on now. I know that you're a creative artistic person. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably oh. not sitting on your hands. Well, originally this book was twice the length. Uh -huh. And I was working with an editor who was an agent and um, and it had more stories from Livia's point of view. Okay. There was a novella from when Maddie goes to college and her parents finally do physically split. Mm. Um, and, and then there was a story from the from Grandma Emily's point of view. I don't know if you oh, remember wow. Grandma Emily. Oh, like, yeah mean grandma there's yeah, yeah. a story from her point of view after she dies and there's another story from Livia's point of view when she's an adult and she's pregnant oh. and so I have all these you know all these exist oh there's also a story from a third person plural story from the next door neighbor the oh. Magnus point of view so remember Peppermint Patty yeah 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 um, her family's point of view and it's oh. um it's a we story um oh. so I had all these stories that I had to pull out because when I so the the big version of the book didn't sell when the agent went went to try to sell it as a novel. The comments mm -hmm. were like, "What is this? Like it's unwieldy." And and so I was very sad, but I just picked myself up and I saw that Roxanne Gay was judging this contest. And I the word count limit was seventy five thousand words. My story collection was like one hundred fifty thousand words. It was a mm -hmm. novel, but I pulled it out and went back to my original idea, which had always been a story collection, but I was told like that wasn't, you know, gonna, wasn't gonna be as easy to sell just okay. a, a singular story collection. So it should be a novel, but I pulled all that material out, put it back together and that's what won, but I have all these other stories. Mm. So I'm working on those. Um, I'm revising the novella from Maddie's first year of college, first semester of college. And I, I have three other stories that I want to write. Um, one is already like kind of developed, but it's a mess. It's not ready mm. to go out. But I'm, I'm trying to put together a second collection mm. that prioritizes Livia more than Maddie, but Maddie is in it um, and has these other points of view. So I'm, I'm toying with that now. I'm trying to, oh, wow. trying to make that work. That's so cool about um, kind of carving out this sto the story collection from a yeah. bigger... We, yeah. I don't. I don't think I mentioned specifically, but Livia would be what the half sister. Yeah. Right, and she's uh, I don't four or five years older. No. Ten years. Ten years. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. 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 Yeah. Wow. And she was the. She feels Maddie was lucky too because she. Yes. She got left in the Bronx. Uh huh. He didn't, and her mother wasn't, you know, very demonstrative, and she felt marginalized in the family, and she didn't, you know, they didn't bring her to Africa. Mm -hmm. They didn't bring her, like Maddie got a lot of trips that Livia didn't get. And so Livia yeah. has her own perspective on, mm. you know, this, this, uh, the family's ascension into the middle, upper middle class, which she wow. feels like she didn't, she didn't get to enjoy. Yeah. There's, there's so many, I mean, so many compelling characters. Like, I, yeah, I feel like you could do a whole book or whole collection on, on some of them and, you know, go into the, some of the traumas or some of the background of mom and dad of Valma and Phil. 
is it Emily the grandma? Is that you said? Yes. I mean, she's just a. <laughs> she's quite a. Uh, she lets people know how she feels. Let's just say it that way, right? Yeah. I think yeah. she could so have her she, own. She's kind of fictionalized. My real grandma yeah. was was more subdued. She was like uh, very English. She was from Bermuda, and she was uh -huh. like didn't really talk. But it, but I it didn't work. Like her okay. real personality didn't work. So yeah. so that's why you know this is fiction and not memoir because yeah. I did want it to be entertaining. So mm -hmm. I I did have to change yeah. a, a lot of things. Um, Dude, that scene where she's in the hospital and she's not even backing down. It's like, geez, give him breaks in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thanks so much for for sharing your your rationale and your in the background of these incredible characters and this book, this 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 linked collection, this short story collection, and uh, just wishing Pleasure. a lot of wishing a lot of good luck and with your future work. And I'm um you know hoping to meet you in real life and looking Thank forward you. to reading Likewise. the. Looking forward to reading whatever it, whatever the second project becomes, the new project becomes. Thank you. I'll send you um a a, a PDF of Homegoing if you want to see that. That's um. I'd be honored. That's a it's a short it's a novella, so it's really yeah. short. It's a, like a hundred pages or less. Um, but that that is where Maddie goes back to Monroe in her forties, and so she meets uh, Tobias. And ooh, yeah. I'd be honored. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah, and thank you, and good luck with your work too, and congratulations on this podcast like oh, it's, I I, i've that. seen like the, the list of guests it's phenomenal i'm honored to be one of those people amazing I'm, I'm honored to be able to speak to you i mean to to look at the resume and to see you know not just with with fiction but all the work that you've done it's like um so cool to talk to creative people oh thanks Thanks so much for listening to episode 185 with Tony Ann Johnson, the Renaissance woman. You can now subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa. Find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast peter real my last name is r-i-e-h-l check out the page that describes the benefits of a patreon membership including cool swag and bonus episodes thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show my diy podcast and my extensive reading research editing and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high quality content the intro song for the chills of will podcast is wind down instrumental and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 186 with Stephanie Feldman. She's the author of the novels Saturnalia and The Angel of Losses, and at Barnes & Noble, Discover a Great New Writer Selection, winner of the Crawford Fantasy Award and finalist for the Mythopoeic Award. And this episode airs on June 6th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Tony Ann Johnson, whose work, like light skin gone to waste, gives you chills at will. Mm -hmm.